We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give me my Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast, and I'm your host, Sasha Kapustina. Here, I talk to immigrants who are kicking ass in the U.S. Thank you for tuning in. This is part two of my conversation with Dr. Otto Yang, who is the Associate Chief of the Infectious Disease at UCLA. Dr. Yang is a first-generation Taiwanese-American who grew up in a family of scientists. He graduated from the Brown University and Harvard. And for the last 20-plus years, Dr. Yang has been specializing in T-cell immunology and HIV. And since the beginning of the pandemic, he has repurposed his lab to study the immune response to COVID-19. We talked about Dr. Yang's research in part one of this interview, which you can find in the same feed where you're listening right now. And in this episode, we get down to the nitty-gritty of the COVID-19. The science on the pandemic and the situation itself are constantly evolving, and so I hope that this conversation will provide you both an update and a broader context to think of the new information as it comes in. And it does come in all the time. Since we recorded this conversation a few days ago, Johnson & Johnson vaccine has actually been approved. That's the only update so far. It's a longish episode, but it's packed with great information. And I hope you will deem this hour well spent. I do want to start with the basics because even though it seems like we repeat the same stuff, but the stuff seems to be evolving all the time. So let's just go through four basic things. The, the PSA part of it is spread protection, variants, and vaccines. What do we understand about COVID spreading right now and how it happens? So it's a respiratory virus and the virus is shed in respiratory secretions. So things like coughs, sneezes. Um, and so there's, that's one area that's been evolving a little bit because we, because physicians and epidemiologists like to cleanly classify viruses, respiratory viruses as spreading through airborne versus mm -hmm. droplet. Yes. So airborne means they're very, very tiny particles that can float around uh, for minutes or hours in a room and can float long distances. Uh, droplet are the larger particles that drop fall by gravity um, and do not float in the air. Um, and to some extent, this is a little bit of an artificial classification because when you exhale stuff or cough out stuff, it's actually a continuous spectrum of size, right? So there's some particles, right. the, the airborne is the extreme, the ones that can float for a long time. And the droplets are the other extreme things that don't float at all. But there, there are there are particles in between that can float a certain distance and then fall. Or, or um, and so it's that turning, makes sense. Yeah. So it's turning out that that for sure droplet is a major way that that spread happens. Um, and then airborne is a less efficient way, but also a possible way that the virus can spread. Um, and so that, if I understand that correctly, that has to do with the viral load. Yes. Right. So. Again, it, it becomes a little bit uh, mathematic in terms of when, when you have liquid in a drop that comes, comes out of your body, 
the, the question is whether there's virus in that drop or enough virus in that drop to infect another person, right? And so at the smaller the drop, the less chance that there is enough virus to cause an infection. So it's, I like to use a, a lottery ticket analogy, right? So a big drop is a lot of lottery tickets um, and you're, mm -hmm. you're all pretty much guaranteed to, to win this unfortunate lottery. And a very small drop, something that's floating through the air, um, is, is unlikely to have a winning lottery ticket in it because they're so, it's so small. So it's not as clean as, as the story first came out where people were saying it's purely droplet and it's not airborne. It's somewhere in between. Um, and under normal circumstances, airborne transmission is very inefficient um, because there's just not enough virus, right? So if you're walking through the grocery store and somebody nearby is breathing, or coughing, um, just a, a quick exposure, it's very unlikely that you're gonna have enough exposure to get infected. It doesn't mean it can't happen, and you could be very unlucky, unlucky and it could happen, but in general, it's not going to happen. On the other hand, if you're in a room in a, uh, where people are singing for two hours, um, and it's closed and there's no airflow, um, now the even though it's inefficient, it's gonna happen because you're having so much exposure, so. You're buying too many lottery tickets. Exactly, exactly it. So that, you know, there was a news report of that. So unfortunately, a little complicated and depends on the circumstance. Um, so people generally, and again, that gets to your point of, well, the complication is confusing people. It, it is, yeah. Um, and so for flu, for example, it's, it's very nice and clean and airborne uh, spread almost never happens. So we, we like to call flu a droplet disease. And then for measles, Airborne is extremely efficient. So if you're in a room with somebody with measles for 10 minutes, uh, your chance of getting infected is almost 100%. Wow. So that, that's on the other end of the spectrum. Very, it's very clean to classify these two diseases as airborne and droplet. But the truth is, uh, you know, it's not that clean. And this one is somewhere in between. Wow. And so continuing the imaginary trip to Ralph's, for me, the scary part was, I, I don't know why, I guess it's like an emotional thing. What if somebody coughs and those droplets are on the food, on the packages, and then I'm bringing it home. And early on, there were these reports that the virus can live on the products for days. And so receiving mail, receiving packages, bringing food in from outside, everything turned into this whole sanitation bonanza. Um, <laughs> what is the consensus right now? Right, so that's also an area that's evolved. Um, so there was a study very early on that kind of scared everybody, which was, which is what you're, you're citing, which is that, that the virus can live for hours or days on surfaces. Um, even at that time, actually, many of us had serious criticisms of that study because it, it was very artificial. The, the, the virus was grown in the laboratory under ideal conditions. It was put on these surfaces in huge, huge amounts. Um, you know, in the real world, probably the virus doesn't live very long on surfaces. Uh, so, you know, what's coming out of a person is much less than what was being used in the laboratory. Um, it's not in an ideal medium, uh, which is when you grow it in cells, but it's, it's in respiratory secretions and there are things like antibodies, there, there are enzymes in, in, in mm -hmm. what, so it's not, it's going to die pretty quickly. And then on top of that, the, the generally you're not gonna get infected if you take it orally. So if you touch your food or your food's contaminated and you eat it, it actually has to get the cells that have the receptor which are in the respiratory tract, right? So if you just swallow the virus, in fact, it's not gonna cause an infection. So it's more about breathing it in. Or touching your eyes or touching your nose, right? Um, after the virus, that, it could be spread that way, but surface contamination is probably an extremely, extremely inefficient way for the virus to spread. Thank God. And let's hope that virus doesn't figure out that there's that path. Now, there, there's no way around that because 
this is what's called an envelope virus. So the virus is surrounded by a thin layer of membrane that comes from our cells. And mm. that, that membrane is, uh, is lipids, it's fats. And so fats are not extremely stable. And so, for example, a little bit of alcohol very easily disrupt, disrupts uh, lipid membranes or a little bit of soap um, or, uh, you know, drying out. Exposure. So it, mm. it's, it's fragile in that way. So the, the, the viruses that are especially a problem for contact spread would be viruses like what are called enteroviruses, which are uh -huh. the ones that cause a common cold. Those are non-envelope. They have a, a protein structure on the outside, which is much more stable. Interesting. Now we're hearing that we need to double mask or use N95s. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So that, you know, if, if you think about what I told you before about how it spreads, um, the, the most effective first thing to do is distancing, right? So the, the most lottery tickets are in the big drops and the big drops don't travel very far. So distancing takes care of that. And then, but there is spread through the air. Um, and so a, a regular mask, will get particles of a certain size, right? So, so the, the most contagious or the, the most risky particles still, there's some effect of masks. Um, and then uh, an N95 mask is, is for the very tiny particles, the airborne particles, right? So if the virus is becoming more contagious, it's probably doing that through one of two ways. One is that a person puts out more virus or the other way, which is probably the main way is, is that the virus is more stable and doesn't die as fast after it leaves the body. Mm -hmm. So if it doesn't die as fast, there are more lottery tickets available, even in the smaller particles. And so that's why an N95 or double masking would be useful. And so there's some, some evidence, some studies that if you double mask with uh, cloth layers, that in fact, you can achieve almost, almost the same efficacy as an N95. Wow. Still confusing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, I mean, I think the way I would sum it up is, is distancing is still the most important thing. Right. And I hate the term social distancing. In fact, it's physical distancing, right? You can be perfectly social six feet away. That's the most important thing. And then the second most important thing is uh, masking. And if you're going to be under any regular circumstances, maybe just walking through a grocery store or walking through in a park, a regular mask probably is just fine. If you're going to be more prolonged, like in a small, in a room, closed room with more people, or uh, you have to be around other people, like in an airplane, than an N95 or something more aggressive than a regular mask is probably mm -hmm. what you need. And so you do recommend wearing a mask in a park or on the beach? I still would, unless you, you can be guaranteed that you're staying a fair distance away from people. So if you're sitting in the group of your family, like 15 feet away from everybody, it's okay. You should be okay. Yeah, Ish. you should. You should. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So can we talk about variants real quick? Uh, yes. Because there are, there's a growing number. There's a growing number, but that's to be expected. Every virus mutates over time. And I heard you mention in some, one of the interviews that it's mutating relatively slowly. Do you, do you still feel that way? Yes. And biologically, the reason for that is because this virus has what's called a proofreading unit. So for us, for animals in general, we're very complex. We have lots and lots of genes, you know, millions of, of base pairs of information to make us up and mistakes are very costly because we're, we have so many parts that have to all work together. So mutations in general are an extremely bad thing in animals and humans. So the evolution uh, of, of this process has been that we have extra, actually extra enzymes that proofread and will correct errors when our genetic material is being copied. 
Fascinating. Viruses, yeah, so viruses don't have this. Um, HIV, for example, doesn't have this. And so there's a fairly high rate of error when they're copying their genetic material. And so that means mutation. Interestingly, this virus uh, does have a proofreading unit. So it, it actually has an enzyme that reduces the error rate. Amazing. So it, in a weird way, this virus wants to maintain itself. And because of that, it cannot really adapt. Yes, that's right. So, I mean, it can adapt. So it doesn't mean no error rate. So it still has a much higher error rate than, than, than um, when we make copies of our genetic material. But it is definitely much less. It's also higher population numbers among the viruses than us. <laughs> it's, it's re right. It's replicating at a very high rate, and we're, we're replicating at a much lower rate. Do we expect a variant to come out that will be not responding to the vaccine that is being developed? That, that's certainly possible. The, the, the vaccine has the sequence of the spike protein from what was originally isolated before the virus started spreading a lot throughout humans. And so the immune response is against that original sequence. And it is very possible that over time, the, the virus will change enough that the response against that sequence will not, will not work against the new, newer strains. And so it's a vaccine against one strain. So when the virus is different, then you're talking about actually cross-reactivity, right? So you're, you're cross-reacting against the new strain because what you saw was, was a different strain. Uh, for the moment, that doesn't seem to be a huge issue, except perhaps for the South African strain. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily worry me that much because I saw. because the vaccines can be retooled very quickly, especially the RNA vaccines. Okay, so let's talk about the vaccines and uh, this RNA magic, which completely sounds like science fiction to me. Yes. Uh, can can you can you explain uh, how uh, this is a whole new world? Yes. Yeah, so it, it does sound a little bit like science fiction, and there's a lot of uh, vaccine hesitancy, or a lot of people are scared of them because they it's the first they've heard of them, and they the question the, the point I hear all the time is how can I trust something that was only invented a few months ago and suddenly now is being given to everybody? And the answer for that is is that that assumption is incorrect. It was not invented a few months ago. So RNA vaccines have been in development for 20 years. Uh, and the advantages of RNA vaccines are, are that they are so clean. Um, you are delivering the minimum of what the body needs to make an immune response. And um, in many ways, that should make them safer and more efficient than, than say, a, a vaccine where you're using an entire virus. Uh, or so, yeah, let's, let's just quickly back up and explain. Maybe uh, we all kind of have a vague idea of how vaccine works that you're kind of getting infected or are you not getting infected? What are you getting? Like, so in a normal vaccine, like say if flu, that is kind of close-ish uh -huh. uh, to, to this, uh, how are you regular flu vaccine different is different from the new generation? Uh, yeah, actually we might need, might need even to zoom out a little bit more and talk a little bit, just in a nutshell, what the history of vaccine development is. Yes, let's the, do that. Love it. Context. Love history. Yes. Yeah, to give you the bigger context. So what, what's interesting, what people, the public generally doesn't realize is that um, the people that develop vaccines generally did not have any understanding of the immune system. They're not immunologists. Um, vaccines have always been empirical, right? So the, I guess what you could consider the very, very first vaccine uh, actually was just to use the virus itself. So the first vaccine was for smallpox. Smallpox, right. They would put it into people's body. Right. So that was called variolation. And so what, 
naturally people would get infected by smallpox by inhaling large amounts of respiratory secretion from someone else. And so you would get a big dose in your lungs and it would spread quickly through your body. And the mortality rate was about 30%. So, wow. and, and that's, to think about that amazing, it's, it's amazing historically that, that almost a third of people died of this disease throughout history. So- It's fascinating that we survived. Right. So, <laughs> But on the other hand, people that survived actually did fine and then would never get smallpox again. Uh, they had long-lasting protective immunity. And so what some people discovered actually hundreds of years ago in China and probably in other countries as well was that if you took a little bit of this virus from somebody that's infected and you intentionally infected somebody by, by inoculating them in a small part of their body, like the skin or the nostrils, uh, you get a localized infection um, and it wouldn't spread rapidly throughout your whole body, but the immune system would have time to catch up because it didn't start taking off so quickly. And the mortality rate was closer to two or 3%. Wow. And so the, the first quote vaccine was actually just giving the virus in a controlled fashion to, to uh, people. From the contemporary point of view, one or 2% is still way too high. It's still high, but uh, much better than 30%. Yes. So, so people did that. Uh, for centuries. Then the first true vaccine was actually, if you look in the history books, was, was by Jenner in England, uh, although he was just one of many that were doing the same thing. When you take the smallpox virus and you inoculate someone's skin, they would get a few lesions right around where the virus is placed. Um, and it was noticed that the milkmaids didn't get those lesions. And so it turned out that this other virus that the cows had, uh, something called cowpox, gave protection against smallpox. And so that virus was then used as a vaccine for centuries. So it was used until uh, 1973. And why was the preference towards that cow virus versus these smallpox? You didn't have that 3% mortality. Oh, but it was close enough to protect from the smallpox. Yeah, it was similar enough that the immune system could react to both. Uh, the, uh, the immune response against that cowpox virus would protect you against smallpox because the two viruses were closely enough related. Well, that's fascinating because now we're talking about whole two different diseases and we're worried about one variation of the same virus not being taken care of by the vaccine. How come? Well, I mean, it, it, these are things are mysteries. So that's this kind of <laughs> the point that I was making, which is that we've done all of this with no understanding of what's going on, right? So what I'm, mm -hmm. the story I'm telling you is all based yeah. on observations, not based on understanding the immune system. So after that, the next big leap in history is not for a couple hundred years. So in the 50s, uh, Salk was the first one. He said, let's kill the virus. Let's chemically kill the virus in the laboratory and see if, if we inject dead virus, whether people get immune responses that can protect. And the answer was yes. Uh, Sabin came along a little later and he said, well, let's see if we weaken the virus by growing it in an artificial environment and making it so it's not adapted to people as well. And if we've injected weakened virus, will that protect? And the answer again was yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so basically most of all of our vaccines for a long time were just one of those two models. A weak or dead virus coming into our body. Weak or dead virus. Flu vaccine is a dead one, right? So the, the virus is grown in eggs and then killed and then injected. And so how come neither polio nor measles have mutated and evolved to adapt? They really haven't. Uh, there are multiple strains of polio. Yeah, so they, they, they just haven't. Um, it's not clear exactly why. Um, to some extent, it, it, it's probably that the vaccines have been very effective. There's just not enough uh, opportunity for numbers to go through the mutations. Is that what it That's is? That's right, right. Mutation happens when a virus is making copies of itself. From the virus's standpoint, it's also lottery tickets, right? So each time it replicates and makes a mutation, and that mutation is a lottery ticket 
to the next generation. The next generation for a positive benefit, right? So if very few people now have the virus and the virus is not replicating very much, then, then it's got much less opportunity to, to evolve. And so is that reasonable to hope <laughs> that if we bring down the numbers of COVID disease, of COVID infections to low enough number, it will kind of stop evolving? Stop or slow the process, yes. So that, that is exactly the, the reason why epidemiologists now are saying we need to be very aggressive and get everyone vaccinated. And that's in fact the reason behind the fact that, um, that the US government, I think I just heard in the news, I think just, uh, just this week, committed $8 billion to, to vaccinating people in other countries, right? Wow. We're all in the same ocean of virus. And if, if the virus is continuing to evolve in other countries, it'll make it here eventually. So yes. Yeah. So it's actually to our own benefit if, if we can try to get the virus under control everywhere. Well, that's, that's hopeful. And so going back to, to the RNA, so we're, we're slowly making. Yeah. So I'm making, I'm slowly getting up to present day. Yeah. So that, so after assault and Sabin in the, in the 50s and 60s, the next big advance was Hillman in the 70s, 80s uh, said, well, instead of giving a whole dead virus, let's give one protein from the virus that we produce in the laboratory. And so hepatitis B was that. Um, and so that worked as well. But, you know, these strategies didn't all work for every virus. You know, so uh, one protein, for example, for measles or even killed measles didn't work. It has to be the live measles. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, for flu, the dead one works. So it always varies. You can't rely on one. And we never cared why they worked or not. As long as we have something that works, who cares, right? Um, in the moment, yeah. In the moment, <laughs> right. So the, so the big, you know, the big change in that attitude was HIV. People started getting interested in how vaccines work when HIV hit uh, because the vaccines that they, people tried didn't work. So the first attempts were killed virus or isolated proteins from the virus produced in the laboratory, and those didn't work. Uh, of course, nobody wanted to try a live version of HIV because uh, that's too risky. Um, and so immunologists since then, inclu me included, have been scratching their heads and trying to figure out how vaccines work for quite a while. And it turns out there are probably at least two main uh, ways that vaccines work. So one is through antibodies, which is what we all hear about. So antibodies are proteins that can, that can bind to things, attach to things like viruses. And once they attach, they can either directly interfere with the function of the virus. So if you cover up the part of the virus that, that it needs to attach to a cell, then the virus can attach to the cell or otherwise tag the virus for destruction by the immune system. Um, and that's the part that we understand much better. And then the other area, which is my interest, is what are called killer T cells. Mm -hmm. So killer T cells are cells in our body that survey other cells uh, for whether they contain foreign or abnormal proteins. And if they do, they actually physically destroy that cell. They kill it. Um, and it turns out that killer T cells are very important for many viruses, including HIV. And they exist in our body already. They're not- They're always anything. there. They're they live there. Okay. Yeah. And in fact, they they are constantly. We're we're probably getting cancer all the time, right? Cancer is when one cell turns abnormal and 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 no longer behaves normally. Killer T cells will remove those cells as well. So when we get established cancer or tumor, it's because that arm of immunity has failed. But too many too many bad lottery tickets, basically. Yes. Yeah. And so killer T cells also um, also are important. And some vaccines probably they are they're very important. Um, so. The antibody response is made when there's any foreign protein put into the body. So you, you can make an antibody response with a dead virus. You can make an antibody response with a protected protein. Killer T cells are much more complicated. They, uh, a response of those cells requires that 
the protein is inside a cell in a certain way. And that happens in a natural situation when a virus infects a cell and the cell starts making a virus protein. So those proteins start off inside the cell. So it's kind of the T cell detects the product of the virus. Is that right? That's correct. It, it detects it detects that there is an abnormal protein in, inside the cell. So they sniff it out and they come to the cell and then they kill the cell. And they kill the cell. And so if you inject somebody with a dead virus or with a protein, it does not get inside the cell in the way that make a T cell response. Because it's dead and it can't do anything. It's, right. Uh, and so the, the live vaccines, like the measles vaccine, will make T cell responses. Mm -hmm. So that's probably why certain vaccines will not work unless they are a live version, uh, because for those viruses, the T cell response is more important or is, is extremely important for, for immunity. And for other viruses, antibodies alone are enough to do it. And so you don't need a live vaccine. And so you studied the HIV specifically. And T cells, yes. And T cells. And so how does that connect to the COVID now? Well, it turns out that T cells are probably very important for COVID as well. The reason for the choices in the vaccines that were advanced for study uh, of RNA vaccines and adenoviral vector vaccines is that both of these designs would be expected to make both antibodies and T cell responses, right? So there was a huge rush to get these vaccines out because of the urgency of the pandemic. Scientists didn't know which type of immune response would be more important. Right. So, uh, so they wanted to cover their bases and both of these designs, in fact, uh, will make both types of immune responses. And so that's why these were pushed so fast and so hard. Uh, there, there is a killed virus vaccine out of China uh, and it's much less effective. So in retrospect, this was a good decision. Um, it would have been quicker and easier to focus on just that, uh, a killed virus or, or one protein. Uh, but it turns out that that not, doesn't work nearly as well as these, uh, these RNA or, or adenoviral virus designs. Wow. And so uh, we're hearing now that there are other vaccines coming out, like Johnson & Johnson, I think, uh, that is different. Is it also an RNA vaccine or not? No. So there are the, the two main types of vaccines that are, that are either, well, the two that are already FDA approved in the U.S. are Moderna and Pfizer. Those are RNA vaccines. And the the AstraZeneca vaccine that's in trials and approved in other countries, um, and the J&J vaccine, which is probably close to being approved, those are both uh, adenovirus vector vaccines. And I can explain what both of those designs are. The, an RNA vaccine basically inserts RNA into your cells, and that RNA is, is used by the cell to make a viral protein. So RNA, for those of us who forgot biology since school. Uh... In our cells, is DNA, and uh, DNA is the master blueprint uh, for all of the proteins that make up all the cells in our body. And that master blueprint is very important. So when the cell is making a protein, what it does is it makes a temporary blueprint called RNA. So the, the cell has no way to know that the RNA from the SARS-CoV-2 shouldn't be there. So it's, it's a machine. Uh, it's a factory. Uh, you provide RNA to that factory. The factory just reads it off and makes the protein. So, so when the viral RNA from SARS-CoV-2 gets in the cell, it, it enters that process. And now, unfortunately, the cell is, is making viral proteins. And those viral proteins are what are needed to, to then make new viruses. So we need to notify the factory not to produce this malware. Yes, yes. Um, the RNA vaccines then contain only one very small piece of the viral, the viral genome, of the viral RNA. So the viral RNA is, is 
very large. There are lots and lots of genes. Um, the RNA vaccines contain one gene, uh, mm. one very small part of that virus. And so the cells now that get this vaccine will start to produce that viral protein, just like they produce their own proteins off RNA, or just like infected cell will start to produce that protein off the viral RNA, uh, except it's only that one gene. Huh. So there's no way to make virus because you don't have the rest of the genetic information there for the virus. And there's no way for it to get into our genome because in a normal cell, RNA is a temporary working copy that doesn't last. So the vaccine basically is temporarily turning your, your cell into something that looks like an infected cell, except it's not actually infected. And so now that the cell is producing that protein, the immune system will respond just like it would if you had the infection, right? So from the standpoint of the immune system, the killer T cells see that, oh, this cell is making an abnormal protein. Oh, so they smell that product that comes out of a bad situation. And they're now primed to react if it happens again. And, and of course that protein is made and put out into the body. And so antibodies now will be made also because that protein is there just like you were infected. And so the antibodies, so those two arms of the immune system are, are both activated just like you were infected, except you're not infected. Uh, so that's how the RNA vaccines work. The adenoviral vaccines work uh, slightly differently, but with the final, same final end result. So adenoviruses are viruses that cause very mild infections in humans. So they generally cause the common cold. So what scientists have done is they've taken an adenovirus that's very uh, fairly innocuous to start with, um, and they further weakened it to the point that it, it really can't copy itself anymore, uh, but it can initially infect the cells still. And, and they've inserted that gene from SARS-CoV-2 into the adenovirus genome. So now it is a gene that's part of adenovirus. And when that adenovirus infects the cell, that gene is also then expressed. Uh, and so, so the cell now, again, is making the SARS-CoV-2 protein. And then the immune system sees it as if it were infected with SARS-CoV-2. So basically, it's two different paths of delivering that information to the factory. The two different arms of the immune system. That's right. The RNA vaccine lets you do what a live virus would do without a live virus. So this has been something that scientists have wanted to do, been working on for a long time. So it's not a new idea. It's not something you just invented for this pandemic. Yeah, from what I remember, if I read correctly, the scientists who ended up developing the Pfizer vaccine, they were working on a vaccine for cancer, mm -hmm. right? Which is one of the most exciting things one can even imagine. Yes. And so, as I told you, for cancers, these killer T cells are, are very important. So that's, that's the exact reason they wanted to develop an RNA vaccine. They wanted to get T cell responses against the cancers. And so, okay, well, let me ask you here, is that the first actual vaccine made on that technology? Nope, nope, there've been others. Uh, there've been, in fact, well, there's been a lot of animal testing. So a lot of animal safety data and animal efficacy data. And then there have, in fact, been human trials uh, with RNA vaccines. It's just that they did not reach large numbers like this because there, there was no reason for them to, right? So, when, so they were not spread yet in the population. They were still in the trials. Right. And so we're actually very lucky that we they got so far. Yes, yes. So, so if you think about it from the standpoint of the people making these vaccines, um, you can't test them for a disease where we already have uh, a vaccine, right? So you can't, it wouldn't be ethical to test these vaccines uh, against measles because we already have a good measles vaccine, right? So you can yes. justify testing a lot of people. And if you test against a disease where we don't have a vaccine, then um, either there's a big problem that 
vaccine can't be made. So for HIV, for example. So it was being considered for HIV as well, but you know, the, the, it's, it's not a, a good system to test because we don't know if it's even possible to make a vaccine against HIV. So what you need is a, disease, a new disease where there is no vaccine yet that's in a lot of people. So this was the ideal application for, for this technology. So we knew already from human trials for other diseases, rare diseases, that it was safe, um, but we didn't have really the opportunity to do wide, widespread testing because there was no need for it until now. Wow. So we got really lucky because if that pandemic were to hit us, 20 years ago, yeah. we simply wouldn't have the technology to handle it. Yeah, so, so this is, so again, it's not a new idea. It's not something that's not been tested. There, this, this, these vaccines have been tested for a long time and it's, it's a platform, right? So it's like a, mm -hmm. you can think of it as, as like a printing press. And so an RNA vaccine can be made against anything if you just put it in the right sequence for whatever you want. So, you know, the platform was already fully developed and tested. It's like a printing press was developed, but we, there was no book that needed to be printed yet. Mm -hmm. um, and once this came around and the Chinese scientists published the, the sequence of the virus, it was literally required only days to start making the vaccine uh, once they had the sequence. Wow, that's amazing. Well, just like the virus have spread the lies and conspiracies around its origin and the spread and did it come from the bats or did it not come from the bats or was it a weapon or did it leak or did it was it leaked on purpose um can you just clear it out for yes, my audience i would love to it came from bats right so there are there are bat viruses that are extremely closely related um, and the original sars virus sars 1 which was 2002 2003 was when that caused an epidemic um, also came from bats and in that case there was an almost identical virus in bats so that connection is very very clear this virus is about 85 to 90 percent genetically related to the original sars virus so it, it certainly came from bats originally it may have jumped through another host another animal so i think that pangolin has been proposed because there have been some similar viruses found in pangolins. How it left in the humans, that's where a lot of the conspiracy theories have been. Yeah. So the SARS-1 and MERS have made leaps in the humans with no help at all from nature. So this virus, again, it's a coronavirus. It's extremely closely related to the first SARS coronavirus. Um, there's no reason to need to implicate anything artificial going on. That's exactly the moment where the conspiracies come in, is because people want to invent a different explanation where in fact it is not needed. So what I'm saying is that it, it easily could have done this with no help. Now, did it happen with some help? And that is possible. So the possibility would be that somebody was studying this virus in a laboratory. They were not careful enough. They got infected and then they went home and it started spreading from them. Uh, that is possible. So I, I wouldn't discount that. But what I can say is that people have looked through the genetic sequences of the scars very, very carefully. There's no evidence of any artificial manipulation of the genetic sequence, right? So that is such an important piece of information. That is very important. That we can actually detect that similar to how people can detect if a photograph is original or it's been manipulated. You can also look at the virus and say it hasn't been touched. It has, certainly hasn't been touched in a way that we can detect. Now, if, you know, it, it's, of course, it's possible someone made a change in the virus, but it, it seems extremely unlikely. There's, there's no, and there are some conspiracy theorists that are saying that there are HIV sequences in there and blah, blah, blah. That's just wrong. It's, they're just making that up. Um, that's not true. 
I mean, it is possible that it, it was it was adapted in the laboratory and naturally evolved in human cells in the laboratory and got a head start that way and then infected somebody. And then, so that would not be detectable because that would be natural evolution of the virus. Um, so what we don't see is any unnatural like insertions of sequences or, or genetic manipulations. It is possible the virus was prompted to evolve uh, accelerated its in its adaptation to humans in the laboratory by being cultured in human cells by someone studying it. I think it's extremely unlikely. Why? Again, it's, it's like a lottery ticket, right? There's so many coronaviruses out there among the bats and the other animals. It would have to be just so lucky that this particular one was chosen because uh, if you cultured, you know, hundreds or thousands of them, probably you very easily would not have a single one that could be adapted to humans. So I think the, the exposure of people to, to to the viruses in the natural setting, like in the wet markets or, or you know, among animals, is much, much more. They're exposed to many more strains than the number of strains. Okay, so there's much market. more tickets in that market. Like going back to that lottery uh, analogy, uh, that in a natural way, that is much more likely than in an artificial way. Yes. Right. It's just so that is the counter argument. The number of exposures is just so, so much more in a natural setting than in a laboratory setting. And then the rest of the experience theories make absolutely no sense, right? Because if China were going to develop it as a weapon, or I guess the Chinese say the American developed it. Americans developed it. There's conspiracy on both sides, but oh, that's, what, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, no, they have. They've, they've claimed that the Americans introduced it. So, from my point of view as a Russian, I'm glad that nobody suspects Russia in doing oh, that. Oh, probably somebody does. <laughs> <laughs> but, but right, it, it, it makes no sense because it, it caused a huge amount of harm in China, right? I mean, they, they took a massive hit. Their manufacturing was shut down for months and months. Um, they shut down the, the entire province, Wuhan. People died because they couldn't get medical care. Yeah. Um, it makes no sense that they would inflict this harm on themselves to, to allow the virus to spread to the United States. And on top of that, the United States had months of warning, right? So the, these reports were, were in January. and. and the virus didn't really start to take off until about March. If the United States had taken the right precautions, they could have stopped it, right? So Taiwan had its first case in early January. So the very first case was in early January. They have very close ties and travel. To right, and they're right there. And they're right there. Uh, I canceled a family trip to Taiwan in February because I was mm. worried about it. In the end, to date, they've had seven deaths. Oh my God. And they've had less than 800 cases in the whole country. So Of 30 million people. Like 23 million. 23 so, million people, yeah. wow. Uh, so U US could have done the same. And New Zealand has not done quite as well, but they've done obviously extremely well too. What was it that they did? Contact tracing, aggressive contact tracing, finding people, quarantining them, you know, quarantine of people coming into the country for two weeks. They didn't do any of that here in the States, which I was fascinated with how embarrassingly backwards the response was with everybody has, not everybody, but enough people have smartphones yeah. where contact tracing could have been, yeah. but I guess there's the, all those privacy issues, but even if we volunteered into that, yeah. that would have been such a drastic change. And if people were explained, hey, we need to do this to protect ourselves, let's all volunteer and sign up for this app where it's like our shield. You can't even get people to wear masks. How they're gonna, you think they're going to put an app on their phone and then let yeah. Bill Gates control them? <laughs> oh my God. Right, so. And that's, yeah, and that's where it comes down to this issue of trust between the population and the government and it feels like the countries that where either 
where there's more trust, they can handle it better. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so the leaders in Taiwan and New Zealand, for example, there's a huge amount of trust um, and lots of open communication. Uh, so, and I think that was really important. And I, I think the other thing is, in some countries, they they experienced the original SARS, and and I think they still had a memory of that. And, and so mm -hmm. they were much more cooperative because they knew the the threat better than the United States did. Uh, but yeah, it, it's been a national embarrassment. It, it's it's been just crazy. Um, yeah. Well, I heard you describe the America's response as dismal. Uh, a few months ago. So since then, actually, we had a major spike here in California that has been uh, even more dismal, considering that we already know so much. Yes. Even a bigger embarrassment. And how come? Uh, that's a. I think that's a complex social and political question. That's out of you know. That's beyond my pay grade. Um, right. Yeah. It, I mean, but you know. You, the, you look even even so you look at Taiwan um, they did not have any knowledge or tools back in January of last year that we didn't have so it, it's not like they had some magic or, or some inside information they just did the basics which we've had the basics the whole time dismal is absolutely the way to describe it because we've had the tools in our hands right so the vaccine is great but we didn't even need a vaccine the vaccine now it's it's and I, I worry that we'll consider the vaccine to be the magic answer. And it's really just one tool of, of many. And we need to utilize the other tools as well. Oh, and I should give you the disclaimer that the national health minister in Taiwan is my cousin. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, send him over. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, my God. Well, that that's uh, good for him. Yes. Good for good for him. On the, politics, uh, are, you know, politics are bad there as well. He's been assailed by the by the Blue Party. Um, who claims that he, he's been awful? Uh, it, it's just it's just crazy, crazy politics. Even in Taiwan, it's crazy politics. Well, did they do a full shutdown? Did they do? They never any... shut down. They never shut down. Never shut down. Did they close schools? No. What? Did, so basically, they just closed communication with the outside world. They did. What did they, they, they just, do? Yeah, yeah. No, they they had a 14-day quarantine. So if you came into the country, you had to be quarantined and tested. And yeah, no, no. I mean, like I said, it's just the same basic tools that we have. They didn't do anything so magic. Masking and tracking, testing. Right. And and those things need to be implemented early, right? It's it's like it's like a forest fire, right? If, if when when the small flame pops up somewhere, if you immediately extinguish it, yeah. Your your efforts are extremely efficient uh, and extremely beneficial. If the whole force is on fire, then contract tracing is no longer useful, right? Because yeah, here's a fire, here's a fire, here's a fire. there's nothing you can do about it anymore. That's that's so we've missed this golden opportunity um, back early last year, right? I mean, we, we had two months at least to to prepare to put out the small flames before they spread, and we just didn't. Well, but it, it's not just us, but many other countries. Yeah, many other countries, but other countries at least learn. Right? We have failed to learn. Um, Right. You look at other countries in Europe, for example. Yeah, they, they got hit hard initially, and then uh, many of them then learned their lesson and have, have since done much, much better. Yeah. Well, I am personally very disappointed in California because I don't. Uh, it's so much. Yes. Okay. The officials are failing. This and that, but it is in the American spirit to take responsibility for yourself. Uh, well, that's the thing. People think oh, I take responsibility for myself, I will take that risk. I'm okay with that. 
Yes. So that's that's the problem is is that this is an ultimate test of selfishness, right? Because if you're a young person who's healthy, your chance of dying from the virus is is minuscule, right? It's not a big deal. You probably will have nothing more than than uh, a fairly mild flu or maybe even no symptoms. About 40% of people have no symptoms. So it, it's not you. It's your grandfather or the guy that works in the grocery store with a heart transplant that you might be talking to or your elderly neighbor. neighbor. Yeah. Right? It's those people that, that are affected by your actions. And then the system overall that we cannot open schools and that we have to keep those shutdowns coming back right. so, because we can't sit at home for a minute. So, right, so the, the, the importance of getting your latte is much more important than, than what happens to the rest of society. Unfortunately, that, that's, that's kind of the way that the pandemic, unfortunately, has tested our, our balance of personal freedom versus societal good. And we keep failing, and I don't see anywhere close to enough uh, conversation about it. And that's what saddens me. And I would think, again, like California would be better at that because generally, we are more we we think of ourselves as the progressive state and we think of ourselves as the state who takes care of the community here or at least we claim so but then we fail so epically yeah, yeah. we've certainly done no better than russia no yeah <laughs> definitely not and although, i'm watching russian numbers yeah. uh although they they try to hide them but they're still in the plain sight. Yeah. Well, <laughs> at least we don't have doctors falling out of windows that seems to happen a lot in russia a lot of accidents yeah, no, the, it's uh, it's a, it's an ugly situation there. Well, and that's another thing that came to to that caught my eye, and I think I mean it's been in the in the media uh, is how inequity and uh, inequality impacts is is a health issue. And what you were saying earlier, how taking care of all the regions in the world is the only way that this pandemic will be defeated. What we saw specifically in LA County, is that the neighborhoods that are affluent, the, neighbor, the neighborhoods that where people can afford to work from home, they, the, the chances are one in 20 in Venice or Santa Monica. And then the neighborhoods that require people to go to work physically and be around other people, uh, less affluent neighborhoods where people live in a more um, close counters, they are hit much stronger and the chances of getting hit by the virus are like one in four. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I've seen it, we've seen it here at UCLA where I work, right? So we are on the west side servicing a generally very affluent area where people can get their, their food through DoorDash or whatever. And, and so a tremendously high percentage of our COVID patients are uh, Latino. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's probably, 30 40 50 percent of our covid patients and, and they're so that it's completely disproportionate to the to the to the population we serve and it's because those are the essential workers those are the ones that are mm -hmm. that are still working at ralph's those are the ones that are delivering our doordash um yeah it's it's crazy it really is i do have one more question and it has to do specifically with your uh field of work uh, the research and I think one of the challenges in communication and in informing is that what we brought up earlier is the lack of trust and lack of trust to science overall and scientists. And part of it comes from kind of cynicism that stems from the involvement of money in healthcare. And people 
say, oh, this study was sponsored by this company. They just want that their product out. And so how do you have faith and how do you manage this money versus integrity dilemma? Yeah, that's an important and difficult issue. Um, I mean, what I would say is that most academics um, are not paid a lot. Uh, compared to the private sector. Um, and but a lot of the universities are private. Mm -hmm, that's true, uh, but they don't pay their professors very well. Hmm. So, you know, there's not a lot of profit incentive among academics. Um, generally, someone is in the academic environment because they, they are interested in the, the science or medicine or, or furthering knowledge, figuring out what the best things are to do. So there's not a lot of that incentive. So that I've heard all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories, for example, that that um, physicians are over-diagnosing COVID-19 because we get paid more, uh, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's absolutely just, just not true. And it makes, those things make no sense, right? Because um, filling out a death certificate incorrectly or or billing for something that someone doesn't have, those are, those are fraud and um, felonies. And mm -hmm. so would I risk my career and my relatively comfortable living to, to make a few extra bucks? It just, you know, it just, it makes that makes no sense. Well, it, the assumption is a, maybe more insidious and maybe because honest on a project like COVID, it's not, it, it's a, such a profitable thing and something like a vaccine against, I don't know, cancer or, or even HIV, it can be a huge, huge, huge business. And then stacking, uh, getting some scientists uh, to stack the results in a such way where it would benefit this or that actor. You don't need a gajillions of dollars to compromise one person. Yeah, these are, these are valid concerns. Um, but what I would say is that the, for example, the, the studies of COVID treatments, uh, which I'm involved in, for example, like uh, the original study that showed the benefit of remdesivir. These are multi-center studies with dozens of investigators. For data to be falsified, for the results to be changed based on, on some agenda would require that dozens of us independent scientists all decided together to do this and that nobody leaked it and that nobody, right? So I think I saw a meme somewhere that, that um, conspiracy theorists obviously have never had to manage 10 people, right? Because, <laughs> right? Yes, I always say that. You, you, you guys assume that people are so easy to rule. Yeah, right, that everybody can, can stay on the same page and no one will talk and everybody will be coordinated. It just doesn't happen. Is there anything that I missed that you would like to share? Oh yeah, I mean, back to the conspiracy theory thing. Um, about China releasing the virus, it's obvious that vaccines could be made. So even, even the most their primitive vaccine, which is just to kill virus, actually does work somewhat. You would think that if they were gonna release it, they would have the vaccine already developed and, and in place and, and ready to go um, to protect their own population. Uh, but obviously that didn't happen. Um, and it's another point, which I guess is interesting to me from the standpoint of, of uh, your being Russian is, is the, the Russian vaccine, this Sputnik, Sputnik V. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you think about the, about uh, how reliable the, the Russian information that's coming out on that vaccine is and uh, whether we can, we can trust that it's effective, as effective as, as they're saying. I think that they cannot really afford politically a debacle. And I think they would be careful enough to, to make sure that it is as good as they're saying. 
and I do think that, you know, I, I know that there are amazing scientists committed uh, to their work and Russia has a great history of achievement in science. And so I trust that they have done their work. Uh, and yeah, as I said, politically, they are, there are, there's enough tension in the society already with the last few years of uh, economic uh, issues that they do need, need a win, mm -hmm. but it has to be a certain win. They cannot really afford uh, a, 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 little, a little victorious war that goes awfully wrong. Yeah, the, the, the scientific rationale and design for their vaccine is, is actually quite a good one. Um, it, it makes perfect sense. And in, in many ways, in some ways, I, I think it's superior to the AstraZeneca design mm. uh, and Johnson & Johnson design. Um, and they are using components that are already well validated in other settings. So in some ways, it, it's, it's basically a copies of what others have developed, except combined in a new way. Yeah, no, they wouldn't mess with that. It's the level of, that's why they called it Sputnik, you know, because it's the level of- National pride. National pride, reaching the space, reaching into the unknown, and they needed that. And uh, yeah, well, I think we got most of the things covered and I certainly <laughs> kept you way longer than, than I promised. And thank you so much for making time. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you think. Shoot us a message. All the contact info and links are in the show notes and on our website. I am on Clubhouse now, so come find me and join our We The Aliens rooms. If you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Yang and you haven't listened to part one, please check it out. We talk specifically about doctors' own research. And please support Dr. Ying's lab if you can. The link is in the show notes and donations are tax deductible. And don't forget to share the show with a friend. I don't know, someone who still thinks that COVID is a hoax or someone who is afraid of the vaccine or just someone who is like me, fascinated with science and in awe of our healthcare workers. Just click share and text them a link let them know you're thinking about them while listening to our podcast and help us grow the show. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Double mask if you're indoors. Love you all. Peace.